0: Online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: And today, breaking down the barriers for a huge expansion of Australia's seaweed industry.
2: You know, we're seeing some of the leaders being Tasmania and South Australia where they've really embraced seaweed and and WA has actually recently um, updated their policy as well to move forward with seaweed. Um, But some of the other states are lagging behind.
1: And no home for commercial fishers
3: at the Port of Devonport. And with some of the wolves having been removed over the years, it's simply got to the stage where there is nowhere left for us to go. Being a huge personal concern, it would be so sad to think that Devonport has had shipbuilding and boat building and fishing in here for 150 years it won't be catered for in the future
1: the plight of commercial fishers in the port of devonport coming up and also a close look at the expansion of that port and in just a moment breaking down the barriers to expand the seaweed sector to a 100 million dollar industry Good g'day tony with you on this midweek wednesday which does mean richard bailey will be along later in the program with all the details of the latest power runner sale. Also, if you're a fan of macadamia nuts, there's some good news with a record crop predicted for this season and the consultation process begins to end the live sheep trade. All that and more on a packed program coming up, latest on the weather as well, and your thoughts via the text line 0438922936, that number 0438922936. First up today, a national hatchery network is seen as a vital part of the blueprint to grow the seaweed sector to a $100 million industry employing some 1,200 people. Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance, has told an international symposium in Hobart the key to that expected growth is that all states and territories pull together to push the industry forward.
2: We're very excited about the National Hatchery Network so one of the things that we identified through the AgriFutures funded work on the on the Australian seaweed industry blueprint was that a big barrier to getting started with cultivation is just having access to seed stock and the knowledge of how to grow and reproduce seaweeds so one of the things that we're looking to do through a National Hatchery Network is provide that knowledge and capability and the clean quality seed stock that can actually help seaweed growers get in the water quicker and that's a similar model to what's been adopted in the likes of the salmon industry where there's a shared hatchery facility oyster industry and other industries in aquaculture that's a similar model.
4: Is it because of the biosecurity risks of moving stock between states?
2: Yep that plays a role in it so we need to have um, locally collected seed supply and make sure that those seaweeds are native to those areas in which they're growing but it's also because there's such a seaweeds a bit complicated in terms of the life history and the reproduction of it and so you know each currently each seaweed company that wants to get in the water has to hire a team of scientists to work that out. What we want to do is take that mystification out of the process and fast track people actually getting in the water and growing by providing that clean quality seed stock.
4: So how soon will some of these startups? get their hands on this seaweed stock.
2: Yeah, well we're about to kick this off in collaboration with the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation and the Federal Government grant of $8.1 million that's coming to the seaweed industry. So we're expecting that to start in the next couple of months and hopefully within 12 months we'll have something to industry. Um, it's a two-year program. We're focused on asparagopsis species as the first seaweed type that would be in the National Hatchery Network um, and so that, that will be in the next year to two. That we'll have um, seed stock for Asparagopsis and then we'll expand it to other species of seaweeds after that. And
4: this is a long term plan to try and scale up asparagopsis production in Australia?
2: Mm, absolutely. Well, the benefits you know, are obvious. So we've got a, an Australian discovery of a native seaweed that grows all around Australia called asparagopsis, and it has been proven by the CSIRO and others to reduce methane emissions in livestock by up to 98% when sprinkled in their food this is you know and with MLA and other um, agricultural producers on a mission to reduce their emissions you know quickly over the coming decade this is going to be a key solution that enables them to do that but while we grow seaweed we're also providing ocean health benefits and so it's a double whammy in terms of being you know an opportunity to help protect the the marine environment but also to provide a a climate action product at the end.
4: So once producers seaweed farmers get their hands on this seed stock and their research as well what are those regulation barriers that are currently preventing farmers from getting into the industry and making money from it?
2: Yeah, there's a number of barriers then to sort of actually getting um, ocean leases or space in the water to to start to grow this seaweed. It's different in each state, so each state around Australia and the, and the Northern Territory have their own state government uh, aquaculture policies and legislation. And so, you know, we're seeing some of the leaders being Tasmania and South Australia, where they've really embraced seaweed. And, and WA has actually recently um, updated their policy as well to move forward with seaweed. Um, but some of the other states are lagging. So we're really needing to see seaweed firstly embraced as a part of the aquaculture suite that a state is going to pursue and then appropriate risk-adjusted policy and regulation to support uh, this new industry that can actually provide net positive benefits.
4: So is there regulation or legislation provided for seaweed within that Fisheries Act?
2: In some states there are. So South Australia, for example, has their own um, seaweed aquaculture legislation, but other states, no, it's part of the broader aquaculture. It is a type of aquaculture within their legislation. And then you've got places like Victoria, which still doesn't recognise seaweed in the, as a type of fishery at all. So um, there's some work to do and, and the Victorian regulators are starting to work on that.
4: And this is where the, the the Commonwealth, you feel, might need to play a bigger role in this?
2: Yeah. So we're looking for, you know, and the federal governments, every time they release an aquaculture um, report and part of the national aquaculture strategy that's still in place is around removing red tape and streamlining processes for aquaculture development. So that's an, and to look at you know strategic marine spatial planning that will enable these industries to go ahead. The federal government has very much outlined those things for many years as being part of the agenda, but they are now starting to come to the party with investment in terms of helping seaweed specifically move forward.
4: Who's part of the alliance?
2: Um, we've got a bunch of corporate members who are the biggest seaweed growers around Australia, so that includes the likes of Seaforest and CH4 Global. We've got Harvest Road in there from WA. We've got Tassile, who are looking at growing um, uh, seaweed around their um, prawn farms. Uh, so we've got a number of seaweed companies that are coming together to actually try and collaborate on moving the industry forward. And then we've got a whole bunch of about 45 affiliate members as well.
4: Is there a, a gap in knowledge? from what the researchers are putting out to how the industry can apply it?
2: Yeah, so we're very much in that, I think it's called the valley of death in terms of translating research into commercial production. Uh, and so that's where we're really relying on, um, you know, research and industry and government to support, you know, and help to de-risk some of that investment, to come together to actually make this work. And the national hatchery network will be a key part of that.
1: Joe Kelly, the chair of the Australian Sustainable Seaweed Alliance, talking there too. Larissa Smith about the blueprint for the seaweed industry to expand to a one hundred million dollar sector in Australia, and a national hatchery network is seen as a vital part of that plan coming up on the country are no place for commercial fishers at the port of devonport
0: breakfast is better our
5: arcane visa system creates second third
0: and fourth class citizens with rick goddard
6: John Kamara. This is a huge victory for these people who have been in limbo for years who have been suffering. The conversation is changing because there are people now who are at leadership who are ready to listen. I'm really optimistic and happy about where we're heading.
0: Rick Goddard, Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Don't forget our text line number 0438922936 to fishing now. And Devonport is at risk of losing its multi-million dollar fishing industry, a group of commercial and recreational fishers have claimed. They say severe overcrowding at the port has been pushing them out for years and is about to hit breaking point. Commercial fisherman Stuart Ritchie has told Meg Powell they don't want to leave and instead are asking the federal and state governments to chip in for a new $15 million wharf.
3: We've operated out of Devonport for the last 55 years and um, heavily involved in the fishing industry.
7: What have fishing boats done here in the port of Devonport? There's no dedicated wharf for fishing boats.
3: No, there's not. And in the past, we've always managed, but with Devonport becoming so busy and with some of the wharves having been removed over the years, it's simply got to the stage where there is nowhere left for us to go. And to us, as well as... um, being a huge personal concern, it would be so sad to think that Devonport has had shipbuilding and boat building and fishing in here for 150 years and um, it won't be catered for in the future.
7: Now we're down here at the waterfront today in Devonport and across across the river is your boat. Describe to me what happens with your boat on a daily basis.
3: Right, well this morning it was a a normal day, it had to be moved at 9 o'clock from one berth to a different berth to allow the uh, a ship to come in, that also we have to have it manned uh, or people available to move it at 24 hours a day. My son, who's skipper, has to go to Hobart, so I'm it. I'm here in town for the day, on guard, on duty. On duty, ready (laughs) to move the boat if it needs to be Ready to move just in case, which is uh, really sad. Well, to put it another way, over Christmas, there were the three local boats in here and we had to have the boats manned fully manned, ready to move for some reason, I don't quite understand why, on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve and Boxing Day, which meant the fishermen who had been at sea for 200 days a year couldn't be at home with their family because there was simply nowhere for us to leave the boats.
7: Merry Christmas.
3: Merry Christmas. So
7: is that normal in ports?
3: Oh, well, we're the only port it happens to. Um, Hobart, we go in there, they can leave the boat there. Um, Stanley, they don't have to move boats around. Here we've chosen, like I said, 55 years ago to work out of Devonport, where it used to be a a thriving fishing port, where it used to have all the services, had a slipway, it uh, still has the airport, which we need for our sort of work. Um, It had everything here, it had all the the, uh, hydraulics people, we've we built boats here. It had electronic people, it had steel workers so all the services are here but unfortunately boats stopped coming when they there was nowhere for them to tie up at the wharf so they stopped coming to the slip, the slipway is now closed. It's a really um, a cascade of, of issues all related around the fact that there's nowhere to tie up.
7: So there's also nowhere to fix boats here as well?
3: No, there's uh, now the slipyard's closed at uh, we were initially going to Adelaide for our refit this year but we managed to get a, a spot down at Margate so, and they were really good down there, the people who did the work but it was $300,000 that's been spent in Margate where we could have been spending it in Devonport and we would have loved to have spent it here.
7: And now it's not just you, there's um, there's other commercial operators, there's bigger commercial operators and then there's recreational fishers as well and there's nowhere for them.
3: Oh exactly, well, Peter and in Rockcliffe, they've fished out of here nearly, I think Peter's probably been here longer than anybody, I, I think he's he'd fished out of Devonport for about 70 years. His boat goes to Brisbane to have its refits because it simply can't be done here. There used to be uh, 30 boats would come to Devonport every year for a refit. Um, and that was all money spent in the town it was all spent on uh, on engines, on hydraulics, electronics, woodworking, all the things that Devonport has plenty of people of. So, so it was uh, it was good to see.
7: Have things been tried in the past to fix this situation?
3: Well, we did have a commitment from a previous Labour, a Liberal government in 1986, who were going to put some money towards uh, developing it, but. Uh, that money disappeared somewhere, and so we've been continually pushing for it since then, but it's only been the last, really, two years that it's become an absolute emergency, that there there is nowhere to go, that uh, we've been ordered out of the port several times, just told to go anywhere you like, but don't stay here. Well, we're not going anywhere. We've been here for too long, and we are a vital part of the Devonport community.
7: You've got a design here for a pontoon which would sit between here at the Yacht Club and the new Spirit of Tasmania terminal.
3: Exactly. That um, We're actually shovel-ready with that in that one of the uh, the local firms has very generously donated their time and done all the design work for us. We, we have the design, we have the land, which is on Tasport's land. We have very, very strong support from the Devonport City Council and the Mayor, who would also be... Um, be involved in providing more land and some of the landscaping and issues like that. So we're ready to go. Um, we did have have money promised prior to the previous federal election um, that with the Liberal government they weren't elected, so that money wasn't forthcoming. So we're now working with um, our local Labor members as well as uh, our Liberal federal, federal members who've been very very supportive in trying to get this kick started but until we can actually get a commitment from the state government to put some money in it's very hard to expect the federal government to, to come good with all the money so we've, um, we've met with the Premier we've met with the Treasurer um, we're meeting with them again shortly but really it's getting down to a matter of urgency now in that we know that that the uh, May budget coming up for the Federals um, if we're going to have something in for that that we need some action pretty quickly and we're just most of the times it feels like we're banging our head against the brick wall. We get so close and then um, then we just can't get commitments.
7: Well, 40 years. No wonder you're banging your head against a brick years. wall. 40
3: years, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and yet you know, we see things like they found a million dollars for Cartila, and I don't begrudge that at all. Cartila needs to be saved, but that seemed to happen very quickly. A million dollars for the uh, Vogue Brewery, that seemed to happen quickly. But we... We're just surprised and concerned that for some reason East Devonport seems to be missing out. This would complement what the Yacht Club wants to do. We're working hand-in-hand hand with them to actually develop a maritime precinct that would run from the new spirit of Tasmania birth through the community um, berth where we're proposing, through the Yacht Club, down to the Reg Hope Park, you can see where the Julie Burgess normally births, onto the the path that then links with Living City. So it's all part of, of the community.
7: How much are you asking for?
3: It's about $15 million on the quote we have to to do the whole job. A hefty sum. It is a hefty sum, but um, what's Devonport worth?
1: Longtime commercial fisherman Stuart Ritchie talking there to Meg Powell and telling her things have gotten so crowded at the port he has to be on standby all day to shuffle his boat around. Nowhere to go at the port for the commercial fishers. Now, Minister for Infrastructure and Transport in Tasmania, Michael Ferguson, says the state government stands ready to play its role in supporting this project if the federal government commits to fund the $12 million contribution, which was pledged by the former coalition government at last year's federal election. That's for a new $15 million wharf for the fishers, the commercial fishers. Well, let's stay on the port now and head up the river a few metres where we'll hit a section where a lot of work is happening. It's the site of the new spirit of Tasmania Terminal, which needs to be a whole lot bigger to fit the new ships. It's all part of a bigger multimillion-dollar makeover happening at the port. Meg Powell took a walk around the site with someone who could explain what was going on.
8: My name's Anthony Donald. I'm the CEO for Tasmanian Port Corporation. Um, what we're looking at today um, is the Devonport Keelink project.
7: So what we're looking at is it's kind of it looks like a series of uh, ponds, I guess you could describe it.
8: So we're, we're dredging out um, uh, the berth pocket and, um, and some of the channel within the river to enable um, the new TT line vessels um, to, to come into their new spot, um, their new parking position essentially in the river. we're re- removing around forty five thousand cubic meters of material. Um, and that will take um, probably another six, six to seven weeks, and um, and in order t- um, for that to be done appropriately in accordance with our environmental management plan and the EPA requirements, that material is first moved into sediment ponds. Each um, each pond is protected with a layer of, um, um, essentially con- constructed with. Um, clay and then covered with a geofabric which which keeps um, all of the particles separate from each other and I think we've probably got about 7 or 8 different cells there not all that dissimilar to what you'd expect to see in a a large landfill site but it is a, a, a lot smaller than than um, than a landfill.
7: And so that's being dredged out because those new spirits are a fair bit bigger than the old ones.
8: Yeah, that's right. And so we're dredging down to 9.7 metres, which will allow appropriate um, safety um, under keel clearance for the new TT line vessel.
7: What are we looking at here?
8: So we've got um, a large um, excavator here, which is sorting um, rubble. This rubble has been imported um, and will be used for um, some of the reclamation work that we'll... that will start to take place um, in the next few weeks. The reclamation works is basically um, the area of of land that we then increase, um, that encroaches in part of the river, um, which is basically um, the the civil infrastructure or the earth, the rock on the earth that will be used to um, form the ramp, the new ramp for the spirit of Tasmania. The ramp is being constructed by TT Line.
7: All right, we're looking now at uh, a few men in a a boat. What's happening here?
8: Yeah, Meg, um, these guys, I mean, this is a a project that involves um, existing infrastructure as well as the construction of new infrastructure. These guys are currently preparing for some diving activities, which will occur today, and the divers will be in the water um, further up the river around the existing wharf structures around where Sea Road and TT Line currently berth just to undertake further inspections uh, um, to understand the existing condition of the the pile Wharf structure.
7: What's the scope of the works that you're doing here?
8: So stage one of the project is all around um, dredging and reclamation work um, and we're essentially constructing all of the new area for the TT line operation. So where we're standing here today will be part of the brand new um, terminal for TT line um, the, the wharf infrastructure, the pavement. Um, we're talking about a once-in-a-generation project um, and, a, and a design life of 50 years, particularly around the marine activity.
7: So this port makeover, though, it's not just about TT Line though, is it? It's, there's going to be more than that?
8: Yeah, that's correct. It's, uh, it's also about supporting um, our customer in C-Road. And so um, essentially what we will be creating is two state-of-the-art facilities, for um, one for TT Line and one one for Sea road working hand-in-glove with both of those customers. Um, we're talking about an increase in capacity for both customers of around 40%, which is a significant uplift. Um, for TT Line, the new ships um, and the terminals that um, we're, we're building um, with them will accommodate for around another 160,000 passengers per annum, um, which when you think about the economic benefits to the state, I think that's in, in order of another $200 million of economic benefit for Tasmania.
7: What's going to happen for other users of the port, such as the fishermen?
8: Um, yeah, You can see on the other side of the river, there um, there are a number of fishing vessels. Um, we're in con- um, we're in um, conversation with a number of those um, fishing vessel owners. Um, we understand and, and we know and we support their aspirations for a dedicated um, fishing wharf. Um, and we know they've been in discussions with um, with government accordingly.
7: So that's something to do with government or TASports? What's yeah. the deal there?
8: Within um, the TASports Master Plan, we've got no plans to create a, a, um, a fishing um Um, pontoon or a wharf structure um, for the fishing vessels. We know that they need a home in Devonport. We know um, where they would like to be. Um, We've worked with them to ensure that those plans are are well-coordinated with ours, and we're very supportive of their their plans to install something um, once funding is available. So what you can see here, Meg, we're we're currently, we're probably about 20 metres from the the river um, at this point. There's two um, dredging activities being undertaken. One of them is with a large excavator off the the current sort of um, uh, rock-earth area. There's a lot of um, very soft, sloppy material currently being loaded from the excavator, which has a 27-metre-long boom, um, into some large um, construction um, trucks, which is then being transported further out towards those sediment ponds we talked about earlier.
7: How long has this all taken so far and when is it expected to finish?
8: Yeah, works commenced um, really in sort of November and December, but it was really after Christmas that we started to see, um, you know, the 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 main part of the construction activity. Um, the the main earthworks and dredging um, will be completed in the next. Um, five to six weeks. Following that we'll start to see some piling activity.
7: Just quickly Anthony, there will be a bit of a transition period between the new terminal and the old terminal. What's happening there?
8: With um, with um, construction projects such as this one in an operational environment one of the things that we need to work closely with our customers on is um, disruption. Um, and But pleasingly um, both customers in TTlo and Sea Road wanted minimal disruption to their operations during the construction of this project. We can complete the construction activity without disturbing or disrupting the current operation. We'll be able to move TT Line into the brand new facility um, before we then commence further construction activity on the old facility that they'll be moving out of.
7: So what's going to happen to that old facility?
8: That will become part of Sea Road's new terminal.
7: So the, the ramps and the car park and will be ready first, but there won't necessarily be a building. Is there a bit of a teething period there, what's happening?
8: No, we're just working through the, um, the requirements for um, with our customer TT Line um, to ensure that um, um, that um, they're really um, clear and comfortable with respect to you know the new standard of terminal that they want to um, have in place for their customers.
7: But just to clarify, there's there's no plans yet for these buildings that we see here in the artistic impression.
8: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. It's
1: Tasport CEO Anthony Donald talking to Meg Powell about the worksite at the Port of Devonport where the first stage of a multi-million dollar overhaul is underway. On the text line, George says, Tony, here we go again. The North West holding out its hand for government funding. How about the private sector putting its hand in its pockets? As a Southerner, I'm hardly tired of the pork barrelling that occurs in this state. Thank you for that, George. 0438922936, that text line. ABC Listen.
8: So uh, what's the craziest question you've ever been asked on the Dr Carl podcast?
6: We've had everything from prawn allergies to urine volume and what turned out to be giant cosmic vacuum cleaners.
0: We've had an AI writing a sassy email, cheese causing weird dreams.
6: The background is that nothing is really impossible in science.
0: Dr Carl and Dr Lucy have all the answers on the Dr Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: And still to come on The Country are the future of the live sheep trade. Also a bumper macadamia crop. Richard Bailey with the livestock markets and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward.
9: Thanks, Tony. This year's Target Tasmania event has been postponed. Last year, the death of 59-year-old Tony Seymour while competing in the Target Tasmania rally event prompted a Motorsport Australia review into the conduct of tarmac rallies in Australia. This year's event was due to commence in April, but the review has yet to be completed, meaning Targa 2023 will be postponed until late October. A Tasmanian Parliamentary Inquiry into the planning for a new AFL stadium at Hobart's Macquarie Point has received more than 900 public submissions, a large number questioning the need for a stadium. The Upper House's Public Accounts Committee is examining the process used to select the Hobart waterfront site, the costs of building and operating a stadium, and its long Term financial sustainability. There are calls for more international aid beyond what's been delivered in Turkey and Syria following the devastating earthquakes that have rocked the region in recent weeks, killing more than 47,000 people. And communities in New Zealand are bracing for more wet weather a week after Cyclone Gabrielle tore through the North Island. More news at one o'clock.
1: Time now to check the all important weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Good afternoon, Tony. How are you going? Going well. You're just fresh off a call with the Tasmanian Fire Service, I believe. Can you give us any insight? Yeah, info? That,
10: that's right. So obviously it's it's pretty benign weather today. Uh, you know, mostly sunny conditions over the state, but there's a little bit of cloud about the east. But the the coming days, uh, starting tomorrow, but then particularly Friday, Saturday, it's looking to be quite hot with uh, northeasterly winds bringing Lots of temperatures on Friday and Saturday to be uh, into the 30s uh, across many parts of Tasmania, potentially the mid to high 30s some inland parts of the southeast. So along with that, we're seeing an increase in uh, fire weather conditions. Uh, it looks like uh, most days the remainder of this week will have a, a district rating of high for fire weather conditions. Uh, but there'll be pockets of extreme fire danger expected uh, during Friday and Saturday and uh, fire agencies are looking quite closely into that and discussing how they're going to be responding. Um, I don't have the answer to that question, but I was just uh, chatting to them about some of the things that could go wrong or if things get a little bit hotter or a little bit windier yeah. on the implications they might have.
1: And windier is the uh, is the key, isn't it?
10: Yeah, wind and heat, uh, also lack of rainfall over a period of time, much like we've, we've had, and uh, the, the condition of the various fuel types uh, around uh, Tasmania as well.
1: Um, and there's no mention of a total fire ban at this stage, but they're looking, I, um, I would assume, at it closely.
10: Yeah, very very closely. Um, not that I'm aware of, but obviously they'll, they'll make that call in, in the next day or two, I, I reckon. But um, I, I have heard that they're, they're doing things like stopping uh, or cancelling uh, permits and, and the like and just, you know, have, having a, a real good look into it. Because as we are getting further into this fire season, it does look like things are starting to sort of ramp up a, a little bit. Bit of a contrast to the all the significant rain we had towards the end of last year. It's yeah. sort of like someone just turned the tap off, really.
1: And all that rain has done is make things like weeds and grasses grow and grow and grow.
10: Yeah, yeah, yeah That's that's right. Yeah. Uh, if you are looking for rain, though, next chance will be with a, a cold front coming across us uh, later. Saturday or, or during Sunday morning, uh, bring a, a band of rain across the state. Looks like everyone's going to get a, a few millimetres. Some indications that the uh, southeast could get a, a decent amount of rain, but it, it looks uh, fairly fairly uncertain with the, the timing of that front and how it crosses us. Looks like uh, cooler conditions, though, once that front comes through, but we'll be back into the low 20s for most parts of the state. So. It'll be a big change, a big swing, almost like a roller coaster ride this week. Hobart was 16 degrees or 16.8 degrees on Monday, could be mid 30s on Friday and Saturday, and then back down to the, the low 20s from Sunday onwards. So big, big up and down, Tony.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's the old adage if you don't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes.
10: Yeah, that's exactly right. Something for everyone. That's what <laughs> we provide down in Tassie.
1: And there's been no <laughs> rainfall at all in the last 24 hours?
10: Uh, up to nine AM. And, uh, basically, yesterday there were a few light showers, mainly over the southeast. Gave around one to three millimeters, but nothing, nothing overly significant. Grove had four millimeters. Uh, Macquarie Island had three and a half. If you're yeah. watching down that way, yeah, a little bit.
1: Yeah. Okay. In
10: terms of, uh, in terms of warnings, we've got a strong wind warning for southern, western, and northern waters uh, today between Tasman Island to Cape Portland, and tomorrow. Strong wind warning for lower eastern, southern, and western waters between one Glass Bay to Stanley. This afternoon, we'll likely issue a, a heat wave warning for southern Tasmania experiencing those more significant temperatures, particularly for Friday and Saturday. And at this stage, there's no indication of a fire weather warning being necessary for this end of the week period. But uh, as I said, keep, keep an eye out see what the TFS do in, in, with regards to our uh, total fire bans and, and, and the like.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Now, out on the waters, uh, what's it like out there?
10: Alright, well fairly consistent east to north-easterlies. So We've got up to 20 to 30 knots through the central north coast and the far northwest coast. Uh, 5 to 15 knots elsewhere for much of uh, the remainder of the afternoon, but eventually winds will increase to 15 to 25 knots later today, and then reach 30 knots in the northwest and south. Tomorrow, consistent northeasterlies, 15 to 20 knots, lighter and more variable about the southwest, reaching 30 knots about the northwest and lower east. Swell-wise, relatively light on about the western south to southwesterly two to three meters decaying to one to two meters later this afternoon and uh, decaying further to one to one and a half meters tomorrow through bass strait a westerly under one meter offshore uh, becoming confused below half a meter tomorrow up the east coast we've got a southerly one to one and a half meters uh, decaying slightly tomorrow and uh there'll be a, a week uh a, a week northeasterly below one metre as well. We've got a significant wave height observation of 2.5 metres off Cape Sorrel in the west and uh, one metre on the east coast of Mariah Island.
1: Beauty. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Tony. See you later. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all that uh, information for you as we head into a hot next couple of days. And uh, keep listening. We'll uh, we'll make sure that you get the latest information Uh, from all parts of the emergency services from the the, uh, Bureau as well as the Tasmanian Fire Service. Coming up, looking at the live sheep trade, what's the future?
5: Breakfast is better. Our arcane visa system creates second, third and fourth class
0: citizens. With Rick Goddard.
6: John Kamara. This is a huge victory for these people who have been in limbo for years, who have been suffering. The conversation is changing because there are people now who are at leadership who are ready to listen. I'm really optimistic and happy about where we're heading.
0: Rick Goddard, Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Uh, 4438922936 that text line number. The federal government will soon begin its consultation process to end the live sheep export trade. Labor government promised to phase out the trade as part of its election campaign last year. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says he's held an online meeting with industry this week to discuss the next steps.
6: They've obviously been clear that they strongly want us to change our position on this. I think, though, that the industry wants to make sure that as we go forward that we are listening to them and working with them, and I've tried to be very open in my dealings with them, whether it be behind closed doors or publicly. What I'm interested in is coming up with solutions that actually benefit this industry, and we want to see more sheep raised in Western Australia, not less, but I think there is a really massive opportunity to expand the onshore processing of sheep in a way that will earn even more export dollars for Western Australia, let alone the extra jobs that can be created.
9: How do we do that, though, when we're struggling to fill the processing jobs that are there right now? Hmm.
6: Yeah, look, that that is an absolutely valid point and has been raised with me. And again, this is one of the reasons why we can't implement this overnight. I mean, I've also met in the past with some of the animal welfare groups who would like to see us implement this commitment immediately. And I don't think it's realistic to think that that can happen for reasons like you're putting forward. It will take a bit of time to build the processing sheds, to get the equipment, to get the people. But I'm confident that by working cooperatively, we can do that. Obviously, there would be opportunities for locals in employment there, and the training needs to be provided for people to do that. But since coming to office, we've also dramatically increased the number of Pacific Island workers who are now working in Australia, including in meat processing. And we now have a record number, 35,000, who are working in Australia, many of them in meat processing. And I think there are opportunities to expand the number of people we bring to this country to work in this industry, as well as employing locals.
9: Right. So what are the next steps as we transition out of live sheep exports what's next on your agenda and what time frame are you working to
6: the very next step is that we will fairly soon be announcing a consultation process with a panel of people who've got experience in the industry and the related issues to consult with everyone who's got a view on this. Because of course, the industry itself, there are many views there that need to be heard. But equally, there are people, as I say, who are coming from the animal welfare side of the debate, and they need to be listened to as well. So we haven't set a time frame to implement this, uh, and quite deliberately, because we want to hear from people about what's possible, what's real, and what would need to be done in order to implement this policy in a beneficial way. So that's exactly the kind of issues that this consultation process will be looking at. It'll be basically looking at how and when do we deliver this commitment rather than whether we should deliver it. And I hope to be able to make an announcement about that fairly soon.
9: Many businesses are, you know, making decisions about their future, what they invest in. What would you say to those who are concerned that there is no clear timeframe frame? about when this trade will come to an end?
6: Yeah, look, I can understand uh, people feeling a bit uncertain about the future of this industry. I mean, what they can be sure of is that our government remains committed to implementing our election commitment to phase out the industry, but we won't be rushing it. We'll be doing it in an orderly way. And as I say, I'm keen to get that consultation process up and running quite soon so that we can really have some answers for people uh, as soon as possible.
1: That's the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, speaking there with Steph Sinclair about the consultation process. Next stage to end the live sheep export trade. To the grains industry now and classification of new crop varieties will eventually all be brought under the one roof in a plan from the GRDC-funded organisation, Grains Australia historically classification of new varieties of barley wheat oats canola and pulses has all been done by separate organizations barley and wheat classification has already shifted to grains australia the other commodities are in the process of being brought over angus furley spoke with grains australia general manager for classification megan Shee, about the changes
11: One of our core elements of Grains Australia is to deliver market-driven classification to the industry. So classification is really important because it connects growers to market value via breeding. So Grains Australia is providing a connected and informed approach with excellent support functionality by having input from Grains Commodity Councils, which provides end-to-end, so from grower right through the supply chain to the end user, providing strategic input into classification frameworks.
5: And this classification work, it, it has been taking place to this point, but by a whole bunch of different organisations, and, and the ultimate plan is for Grains Australia to do that work for all grains commodities?
11: That's correct. So... To so this point in time, Barley Australia and Wheat Quality Australia have merged their company structures into Grains Australia, bringing with them their classification functions. And we're currently also building classification frameworks for oats and pulses and in, t- in the future potentially for oil seeds as well which will be fantastic to be able to share learnings across those commodities.
5: And I guess the important distinction is that we're talking here about I suppose classifications of new varieties as they come online rather than setting grading or or receival standards at receival sites?
11: That's correct so there is a very big difference there between classification and between grading so classification focuses on the genetic differences between varieties which the breeders are focusing on delivering in some cases particularly for wheat and barley quite comprehensive lists of different uh, technical requirements that they need to deliver information on or that we need to do further testing on. For example in malting barley we carry out pilot malting, commercial malting and pilot brewing on the varieties that are submitted into a program and clearly you you can't do that at the point of receival when grain's being delivered.
5: Okay so as part of your work if a new barley variety was developed you'd classify whether it was malt or not
11: yeah that that's correct so for malting barley essentially we are classifying it we have pretty much two classes we have medium fermentability or high fermentability varieties and essentially we are saying at the end of this process that that variety can make malt and it can make beer within that fermentability classification so it's fit for purpose. Is it
5: your role to talk with end users about what they want and then feed that back to the, the plant breeders?
11: Certainly that is our role at Greens Australia to have that connected end-to-end approach so part of the value that we can deliver is collecting those market signals and being able to reliably inform the breeder so they can utilise that information within their breeding programs, which in turn leads to a structured and strategic approach to grains classification, which gives grower value by having confidence that the varieties that the growers are planting are going to be varieties that are valued by the market at the end of the day.
5: And on that note, I imagine though that in some cases or lots of cases that that. Uh, the varietal traits that the grower wants may not align with what the end user wants
11: well look it's certainly true that it's it is a tricky balance for we give we give a big wish list to the breeders where they need to balance agronomic at- attributes that are important to the grower. the growers are looking for yield uh, they're looking for good disease resistance and all the other sorts of things that are important to them from an agronomic point of view and the breeders a large task is to be able to combine those agronomic traits with end quality traits which is where classification testing is quite important because uh, the breeders are looking at those traits and how they can incorporate them along with those agronomic features and yield gains into new varieties and that's where we test those genetic differences and how they perform with those, the end product functionality through classification.
5: Are there opportunities in the future for new, uh, higher classifications, more valuable classifications than currently exist?
11: Certainly for for wheat and barley, we have comprehensive classification already that delivers market market value, particularly for wheat across a number of different categories with the various classes that are available. Certainly we'll continue to review and assess how those classes are delivering for both the grower and the end market user. We do have to be careful not to overcomplicate to the point where a breeder, it's, it's an impossible list for them to reach those quality traits while at the same time being able to deliver yield and disease resistance, stability, etc., in the varieties for the grower.
1: Megan Shee from Grains Australia speaking there with Angus Furley about classification of grain varieties. To the nut industry now, it's predicted the country's macadamia growers will deliver a record 60,000 ton crop this year, up from nearly 53,000 tons last year, with a boost in nuts due mostly to the increased plantings in the region of Bundaberg. While the forecast is due to spark some optimism in the sector, Macadamia growers are facing another drop in farm gate prices from processors with fears prices will drop below $2 a kilo nut in shell, prices not seen by the local industry in more than a decade. Australian Macadamia Society CEO Claire Hamilton-Bate has told Kim Honan that's a record figure.
12: Uh, At this stage, yes, the prediction is the, um, the largest crop that we will have seen for Australian macadamia production.
13: How much of that is uh, due to increased plantings up north or even in the northern rivers?
12: Yes, most of that is related to increased plantings coming into production and aligns pretty much with the forecast projection moving forward lined up with the age of those trees that are, are now coming online.
13: So there is some uh, level of, of uh, caution though, a degree of uncertainty about uh, how the, the weather conditions during flowering may
12: affect this year's crop though? That's correct. And that, and we had very varied weather conditions in the different regions. Um, certainly some of the New South Wales production regions had some concerns over that cooler, wetter weather through flowering. And we won't see the implications of that in the model until um, slightly later on. And that model is revised several times through the season.
13: Well, the industry in the Northern Rivers was certainly hit hard by the catastrophic floods a, a year ago. Have the, the growers recovered?
12: obviously a huge scale of impact on different growers depending on their physical location Um, some are still very much impacted, uh, still replanting, still remediation work for the the damage incurred Um, so it's very challenging. Um, Others who are less impacted and have had to put practices in place on farm to manage erosion and factors like that but um, yeah looking forward I hope to a much better season with the Less adverse weather that is obviously outside everyone else' everyone's control.
13: and is flood mitigation is that something that the industry and growers have put a, a lot of emphasis on in the last year to better prepare for future flood events?
12: There's a lot of work underway, again, a lot of that through um, the local land services, the New South Wales dpi in in looking forward and and being perhaps better prepared. Um, we're hoping to, we've applied for some grant funding as the peak industry body to do some further work in that space and some research so that um, in the circumstances that we have a similar situation in the future, we can better predict the impact on different age trees. So that's something I hope we'll hear about in the coming weeks.
13: Well, processes are due to release their 2023 price shortly and uh, while record crop predicted for this year that the price does not look good for growers uh, hearing perhaps under $2 a kilo. Have you heard any of the early uh, prices released yet?
12: There's, I've certainly heard as many rumours as, as others have of, um, of various prices. Obviously, as you say, it's probably late February into March that those prices are, are released. Um, and yeah, we'll have to wait and see. But nope. certainly, there has been some softening related to the market conditions and the the volume of nut.
13: Yeah, and is that uh, mainly due to the oversupply on the global market putting the downward pressure on prices here?
12: There's a combination of factors there, and I think we've um, you know talked about before that it, it's a combination of the fact that yes, there is a, was a significant increase in global crop in 2022, up sort of 25 percent for that world crop um, and then obviously the, the ripple effect, the ongoing effect of, um, of COVID impacting demand and, um, and the inventory that perhaps built up more because of that impact on demand. So all those factors coming together to, to softening that market.
13: And if processes do drop prices below $2 a kilo, what sort of impact do you think that will have on growers and the industry? Are we likely to see many forced out? I uh,
12: Again, I think we wait and see where the pricing lands. Um, we've been running MAC groups. We've had our Northern Rivers one last week and we're up in Queensland this week. And talking with growers, drawing on the experience of those that have seen similar dips in the past and looking at um, opportunities to minimise costs, to maximise production so that you're getting the best possible earnings off off your hectare. Um, and then focusing on demand generation and, and hopefully that then carries us through this um, this difficult time.
1: Claire Hamilton-Bates, CEO of the Australian Macadamia Society, speaking with Kim Honan about the record macadamia crop expected this year. Okay, time to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard?
14: Going very well, Tony.
1: Uh, did it go at power any yesterday? Uh,
14: 126 trade-grown cattle, just a f- couple less than last week. Quality was very, very average, in fact, Quite a lot of these cattle should have been at the store sale last week. I think it meant that restockers bought all the all the yearlings. Uh, they they paid three fifty to four hundred and four cents for yearling steers, um, and heifers three twenty to three fifty eight, and then secondary heifers. 300 to 350 so that market was pretty similar to the previous week that's sort of aware The the better better yearlings are making up to 400 and then you come back to that sort of in the mid 300s for the rest and if you're very plain a bit less than that but that's sort of about where we've been for a few weeks now just a few grown steers they made anywhere from 316 to 332 cents up to for the heavy bullocks, uh, 320 to 332, which was very similar to last week. In fact, probably a few cents better. Uh, just a few cows. Um, the better cows made anywhere from 240 to 266 cents a kilo, and then the seconds anywhere from 206 to 240 cents. Just a few heavy bulls. They made anywhere from two thirty four to two fifty two. The ones at two fifty the one of two fifty two went back to the paddock. So just generally speaking, yeah, average quality, but prices held up pretty well. First of the Wiener calf sales or the autumn wiener calf sales tomorrow at Piranha. Uh just over two thousand cattle have been advised. Just a reminder it's a twelve o'clock start, not eleven o'clock like we do our normal store sales. Twelve o'clock start for the wiener sales.
1: Any expectations there?
14: Um, I would imagine that it will be as good as the store sale last week and probably a little bit better, just purely because there'll be better lines of cattle. But uh, this will give us a good guide as to where we go uh, for the rest of the autumn, probably. You know, there's a bit of conjecture as to where the beef market's at, whether it's sort of bottomed. You know, obviously it's corrected a fair bit, well, obviously since this time last year, but even in the last... Uh, two or three months. It's just a matter now whether or not it's sort of at the bottom or thereabouts. It will be a different ball game this next six or eight weeks because this is the time of the year where all the good quality wiener calves we see the winner calves and there'll be good lines of them so people can if they want good breeding stock or they want good stock to run on and, and background or or finish uh this is the this is the place to buy them
1: yeah that uh eastern young cattle indicated down 400 cents in the past 12 months but it was up to oh, pl- places at... never seen before wasn't it
14: uh, oh you yeah, know it was it was off the planet this time last year i think you need to put that in perspective obviously it's it's uh further down than a lot of producers like to see it. But um, I think there's an old story in in any trading, of uh, whether it be shares or cattle or sheep or whatever, but there's got to be some money in it for everyone. And at, at times last year, there wasn't any money in it for the finisher, and, and when that happens, there's always got to be a little bit of a correction. But we'll wait and see whether or not this keeps correcting, or whether or not we are near the bottom of that. But um, it'll be exciting. I, I love I love winter calf sales. I reckon you really see the best of our of our breeding, and 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 the um, yeah the straight bred cattle. It's it's a delight. I think.
1: And the country hour start midday tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>
14: <laughs> that's that's when the cattle starts
1: <laughs> Okay, now lamb and sheep, what's happening there?
14: Okay, we had just a few more lambs, 1,281 lambs Almost no weight, three or four or five pins of, of, of sort of heavy, heavy trade lambs And the rest of them, pretty average I'm led to believe some of the lambs have haven't liked this very hot weather we've had just recently And uh, have probably just melted a little bit but yesterday the market was just a little bit cheaper. We're sort of a buyer short, or at least one regular buyer short anyway. The best of the heavy lambs made 175 to 180, just repeating that those lambs aren't over heavy. Trade lambs anywhere from 140 to 173, that depended on quality. Still woolly lambs in the market that are not. really struggling to, to create much competition. Uh, light trade to uh, to kill 98 to 128 and light 92 to 96. Restockers bought very small lambs down to $44, but a lot of those lambs anywhere from 50 to $85 and up to $114 for the better of the light trade lambs. Over in the mutton yard, uh, just over a thousand sheep, just a few more than last week. This market was a little bit stronger, uh, off to some pretty. Pretty severe lows of the previous couple of weeks. Uh, it meant that the very heavy sheep, and these are fairly hard to shift, the, these are the, the big, fat, crossbred ewes. There's really only one buyer in on these, and they made 60 to $70. Heavy sheep, 70 to $78 medium weight 66 to 72 and that was pretty consistent right through that they were probably the one of the bigger gainers and then lighter sheep 36 to 58 dollars. so a little bit of improvement on the mutton job just a little bit more interest there uh, although um, at least one of the major buyers wasn't operating so this goes to show sometimes that We don't always need the buyers. It's just a matter of who wants what.
1: Okay, Richard, we'll talk to you Friday. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, and when Richard returns on Friday, he'll check all the mainland markets as well. That's our Country Hour for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online. Plenty of great stories there for you, as well as the ABC Rural Facebook page. That's our program for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.